Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with True, a podcast dedicated to the region's high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their insights, advice, and experiences on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall, and I'm a partner at True Search. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth from pre-seed to post-IPO. With over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach, working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders, and technical experts. This week, we welcome Lana Duong, a VP of Southeast Asia headquartered early stage VC investor, Open Space Ventures and holder of the prestigious accolade of Forbes 30 Under 30 for Vietnam. Lana shares her fascinating journey from investment banking into the VC world. We take a deep dive on what investors look for in a startup and provide advice to founders on what the venture community really looks for in an early stage company. We also take a whistle-stop tour around Southeast Asia before discussing her attainment of the Forbes Award and the exciting market that is her home country of Vietnam. Okay, so Lana, um, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Really great to have you here. Um, how have you been? How have you been keeping? Hey Sam, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, I think this time has been a special time for for most of us, a special and unusual time for most of us. Um, I, I've been working from home since March, so it's been half a year working from home. So I definitely miss my colleagues and you know just miss having having a, a like. Just miss having the team around me, uh, but otherwise, I know I'm also grateful that you know life has really simplified over the past few months for, for all of us. You know, no travel, uh, no frills, no uh, no so many things pulling us in different directions. So we can really focus on you know what we feel most meaningful and um, and most happy to do. And have you have you found that you've had sort of more time to learn any new hobbies or study new languages or pick up any any old sort of uh, any old sort of hobbies that you were you were keen on? Yeah, so fortunately, I, I had some some downtime at home, so I picked up gardening. <laughs> so so ne- never never knew if I had like a green thumb or, or what color of thumb, but but I picked up gardening, and my plants are all uh, still alive. Uh, so, so yay, and uh, they are actually. Uh, blossoming and thriving, which is uh, a big surprise to all my uh, family and friends. <laughs> Excellent. And are you worried about leaving them when you go back to the office now? Are you going to maybe take take them with you? <laughs> no, I, I hope that I will still be able to see them uh, every day or so. So I'll keep them alive. Excellent. And and how has the rest of the business been coping with the the work from home? Have you had any anything fun or interesting? I've had a lot of um, requests for ice cream, um, not always from kids, um, but uh, yeah. Uh, maybe it comes from me. I, I also picked up more ice cream <laughs> during the break. Um, but no, in, in terms of business, I think um, it is definitely more selective for us as investors because uh, we have to consider the economic downturn, right, impact on the on the business. Uh, however, I think from our network that we've built over the past few uh, past several years, 
uh, we still have a uh, pretty decent deal flow uh, at any point of time and we continue to be pretty busy assessing this deal flow. Yeah, no, fantastic. And let's, uh, we're definitely going to drill into that in, in a little while. But I, I guess I'd be keen to, to start by by understanding your background. You've got a fascinating background, obviously, very high accolade of sort of Forbes 30 under 30. Um, you know, that's that's a wonderful, wonderful accolade for you. Um, do, do you want to talk us through your sort of journey to Open Space Ventures and, and, and why that was, I guess, interesting and, and sort of what, what brought you into this, this industry? Yeah, I have always been uh, in finance. Um, I was a very... Uh, a uh, passionate finance student back in university. And then I started my career in uh, investment banking in London, where I learned a lot about M&A and uh, fundraising and business models and so on. So after three years in investment banking at Citigroup and Merrill Lynch in London, I, I really wanted to uh, move to the buy side and take a more principal position on all these uh, fascinating companies that I get to work on. So I moved to, to Masek in Singapore, and I've always been... Uh, more focus on the financial services sector at, by, by that time. Um, during my time at Tomasek, I got to work on uh, all sorts of investment opportunities from a very large cap billion dollar investments to sort of mid cap and P growth equity. And most fascinating to me was uh, all the innovative startups, uh, those in the fintech sector. So working on these fintech companies um, helped me realize you know, how fascinated the tech industry is, and and so I really I really wanted to uh, focus more on the technology sector, and also dedicate um, more to my home region, Southeast Asia, where I feel that I I understand most deeply, and perhaps I can add most value. Uh, so that that took me to open space, and and I've been here for almost five years now, and focusing on technology startup investments in Southeast Asia in Series A and B. Interesting. And I, I, um, with, I mean, sort of during those Temasek days, uh, what's the, just as sort of point of interest, really, um, what are the big differences between, um, you know, so to do the m and and sort of investment across the different sizes of organization? Obviously, I can imagine the, uh, um, there's, there's, there's quite a big difference between what you would look at in a, in a billion dollar company versus a, a million dollar company. Um, I guess what are the key, the key sort of differences and, and what different things do you look for when you're, when you're assessing those companies? Um, I think that probably the key difference I see is that in billion dollar companies, perhaps the populistic ones, they have a very professional management and they've got all the key pieces of business sorted out or on the key positions field. Whereas if you work uh, with a million dollar or, or like a, a, a growing startup, they don't have everything figured out. They have a lot of uh, sort of positions unfilled. They have a lot of things still to to be done, and definitely there's a lot of room to improve in in different aspects. Um, but that doesn't mean that that they won't be successful. So I think that's something that we have to be mindful of, and and I think it's also the thing that separates successful early stage investors from from the others. So the successful ones, I think, can see all those also missing pieces, but but they can also assess the the success potential of this company in the future. Was there a particular thing that got you excited about tech? What was it about fintech that really drew you towards towards it? I think financial services. 
uh, Ongwei is one of the largest sectors in any economy, and it touches uh, everybody's life. Right? It's one of the most important infrastructure uh, sectors right, in any economy, and it empowers all the other sectors to thrive, to operate and thrive. Um, so when we combine such a big sector with such a powerful force that is a technology, I think we see really magical things happen at a great scale that impact yeah. you know people's lives and businesses and and that's what really fascinates me it's um it's it's fascinating i think we're seeing um you know uh, almost in, in many ways an acceleration around fintech this year um and we you know we we're, we're seeing a lot of businesses sort of hit sort of you know reasonable size series a and series b and um i mean a lot of it i think maybe is driven from um uh, sort of investment money from more established markets looking for a safe harbor at this point um because i think you know the, the reports around the southeast asia region are quite quite uh are quite positive um but it's um yeah it's interesting to see that maturity is really growing and the impact it's having on on, on the, the the community sort of in the, in the region which is which is fascinating so um tell us a little bit about um open space ventures and and, and tell us a little bit about what you what you do there so right now I'm a vice president in investments at Open Space, and we invest in Series A and B technology startups in specifically Southeast Asian region. What uh, that is home to to our team, and uh, we we like to invest in businesses that are solving big problems um, okay. in in these economies where the traditional people have failed to serve adequately, and hence. Um, they can potentially create a lot of value for their customers, for their own business, and for the shareholders. Oh, interesting. And um, could you perhaps give us examples of, of really hot areas that you, you guys are interested in now? Obviously, no no trade secrets or, uh, <laughs> or any sort of tip-offs, but you know, what, what things are you guys getting really excited about? Right. So in the past five years, we've seen um, a huge shift to technology adoption from the population with the with the rise of multi-billion dollar companies such as Grab and Gojek. And they've got people very used to using technology and mobile apps on a daily basis to fulfill uh, essential needs such as transportation, uh, e-commerce, uh, or messaging, or payment. So in the next wave, we're very excited about you know, other essential needs of, of the population. So for example, healthcare, education, and other branches of financial services, such as, you know, digital lending, digital insurance, uh, digital wealth management, and uh, other aspects. Uh, in, in health tech, we have uh, investments in Biofomis in Singapore slash Boston and HelloDog in Indonesia. So they, uh, they approach the sector from different angles, uh, but they are both creating and capturing value, uh, significant value. Bioformis is a remote patient monitoring software um, that, that has clients, uh, that has worldwide clients. And HelloDog is an Indonesian uh, health tech platform, the largest one in Indonesia that is serving millions of customers and bringing okay. them access to doctors and medicine remotely from wherever they are. Oh, fascinating. I think that the health tech, the health tech thing is a, is an interesting space. I think um, it seems like in many ways there's um, 
the, the, the Western markets seem to be a bit further ahead in their journey of, of, of sort of the healthcare um, or the sort of provision of healthcare through um, sort of virtual sort of routes. But it's, it's, it's good to see, good to see things sort of growing here. Um, and I guess when you're, so we, we sort of sort of broadly painted the, 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 the interesting sectors, the, the, the spaces that, that uh, we expect to grow. Um, when you come across a business that looks interesting, um, what are the sort of the key things that you're looking for? And I, I guess that's, you know, I'd, I'd say, say from sort of two or three angles, you've obviously got the people angle, you've got the, the business model angle, you've got the sort of sector angle. What are some of the key metrics or successes or traits that you like to see in a, in, in a business at this, at this stage? That's a great question. I don't think it's a, there's a short answer for it. We actually look at uh, every investment opportunity uh, from multiple angles and quite holistically. So first of all, we want to see that it's serving a large market opportunity. It has a scalable solution, right? So that over time it can capture a big part of a big market and create a, a big business. If the solution can be applied in multiple markets to make it a regional play, that's even better. And we look for very strong management team, founding and management team. Um, these uh, typically are people who, who know their sectors, who have experience in uh, the industry and technology. And they also have international experience combined with uh, deep local understanding so that they are well plugged in, well in their home markets so that they can build uh, a winning business there. And we, we want to see a robust business model with differentiated capabilities. And this means that you know, um, we'll look for product market fit, we'll look for clear differentiators versus their competitors, we'll look for defensible competitive advantages, um, we'll look for their execution capabilities, and we definitely want to see their economics such that we can see that they can become a sustainable and profitable company in the long term. Definitely at the uh, Series A or Series B stage, the company has to have had some, some strong business traction, meaning their, their revenue, their GMV, perhaps their uh, the users, and we, we zoom down further into sort of user engagement and retention metrics to to have a sense of how sustainable this business is over the long term, and from 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 our perspective, you know, the right sector timing is also critical, right? It is something that it's outside of the business itself, but but more in the environment that it's operating in, and a sector is too early if uh, we see that there's been muted, you know, funding activities uh, at any stage in this sector. Uh, and on the other hand, it's perhaps already saturated or too late for a new entrance if we see mm. a lot of late stage funding activities happening. So, for example, now perhaps it would be very late for someone to try to establish a right hailing business and, and try to grow it right, to, to other verticals. Or it, it could also be too late for uh, a horizontal e-commerce play, right? You can establish, establish perhaps other forms of e-commerce. Okay. that are more specialized or, or, or have new ways of attracting customers, but just not traditional horizontal marketplaces. So, so in that sense, the sector timing uh, is really important so that, you know, the startup, when we invest in them, plays at the right inflection point of, of the sector that they operate in so that they have the highest chance of thriving and succeeding in the medium term. 
Mm. And last but not least, uh, we also look at exit potential. Uh, and we, we, we prefer uh, to see a good possibility of international acquirers or local acquirers taking, taking over this business in the future or uh, the potential of the business scaling up to a certain size and certain financial health that it can IPO on a recognized stock exchange. I would imagine that there's a, a reasonable amount of what you do, which is tracking tracking potential businesses. Um, so do you, you know, especially if you're speaking to early stage, do, do you have a lot of conversations where you're like, we really like what you do, but you're just a bit too early stage. So let's, let's sort of keep in touch. And these are the sort of metrics that we would like you to hit, or these are the types of milestones we would like you to pass. Um, do, you, do you sort of engage quite a lot at, at that stage as well? Oh yeah, definitely. And I don't know if this is a secret, but uh, but I'm happy to, to spill the beans on this one. There are businesses that are truly a bit too early, but interesting for investors. And there are businesses uh, that are too early, but uh, but perhaps it will remain early for for the rest of its life because perhaps it's having a small market, perhaps it's uh, it doesn't have the capability to scale up, so it will remain a small business. So we do engage uh, businesses that seem a bit smaller or earlier than what we would typically invest in and would like to build these relationships. Um, and from the founder's point of view, it would be helpful for them to get the specific feedback from the investors that they talk to to understand whether they are like the interesting but early type or early and likely will remain small type. The, um, I wanted to come back to a point on um, the, the e-commerce thing. E-commerce is, I think, at the end of its first sort of big phase in the region. You know, you've got sort of big players. You've got Lazada, you've got Shopee, you've got, um, you know, sort of market-specific players um, like Tiki and um, there's ones in Indonesia. So I, can't, I can't remember immediately. Um, <laughs> probably, I'll probably edit that one out. Um, uh, but, um, you know, sort of uh, and, but my experience on this, and this, this is perhaps... Um, not a sort of good representative experience, but my experience is that it's it's like walking into a warehouse where nothing's labeled, and you can spend hours on there trying to find trying to find what it is you're looking for. Um, and one of the sort of trends I've I've heard of and seen is seen a bit emerging is a more sort of curated kind of marketplace, more sort of specific to particular sections of the of the of the of the, of the sort of the, you know the region. Um, from a more demographic perspective than a, a regional perspective. Is that something you're seeing start to, to come through at all? Are you seeing any sort of players in, in, in this space who are providing, I guess, more curated services to particular particular audiences or, or, or is it you know, still not coming? Now that's an interesting question. I think e-commerce will remain a very important and big sector uh, in the whole technology ecosystem for, for the foreseeable future. Um, what we're seeing uh, as exciting opportunities in e-commerce I guess more around social commerce. So it's a new form of engaging and selling to customers. So for example, we have uh, a company in the Philippines, interestingly, um, that is a very popular social live streaming platform called Kumu. And based on their success and popularity in live streaming and their, and their base of users and celebrities, they also are building a thriving social commerce business and for, for those of us like me who are I, I still class myself as a millennial but i think i'm, I'm on the borderline um what so sort of how does um, how does social commerce work so very interestingly in southeast asia we have some of the most socially engaged populations in the world so the people in vietnam thailand philippines uh for them the internet or, or even myanmar for them the internet is really facebook 
right? So that's that's where they spend most of their internet browsing time. Um, and it's very powerful when you can provide a social platform where users and customers can follow, interact with their celebrities mm. and idols. And these sort of influencers are really influential in shaping the public's perception about products, about the mm. markets, and also in influencing their purchasing decision. And especially in products that people usually look to social proof, right? Uh, in informing their buying decisions, such, such as cosmetics or beauty or healthcare lifestyle products, uh, social commerce can be a very effective sales channel to uh, connect the KOLs and the customers. And the customers, based on their trust towards their KOLs, they you should, they can be expected to have higher conversion rates and maybe higher purchasing value yeah. on yeah. these channels. It's interesting because it basically it blows traditional advertising out the water in many ways, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, I, I don't want to see a nice picture of something. I don't want to see a, a nice sort of video or something. I want to see somebody demonstrating it and presenting it who, who, whose opinion I trust. And it's really interesting also as it brings up sort of questions about um, sort of how ethical these influencers can remain this may be this may be a topic for a different podcast but you know it's it's and so um, on to sort of what, what you look for in in the founder teams I'm, I'm quite interested in um exploring a little bit about um sort of i guess the softer aspects of, of what you look for in founders i think obviously when you look at um uh, industry experience and sort of an international mindset and a sort of a regional knowledge i think those things can be can be assessed relatively easily are there any sort of key behaviors that you look for in founders or perhaps key behaviors that you that are sort of real red flags to you that's a very interesting question i think there are certainly softer aspects that people don't usually mention but they are actually very important in someone's success as a founder so what i found is that you know successful founders have the ability to attract other talented people to work with them on the mission right and and you you absolutely need this ability if, if it's uh, a very talented founder but if it's a very talented founder but but he's a lone wolf or she's a lone, yeah. lone wolf it's yeah. much harder to build you know a big business with a with a big impact Right, yeah. so it's, uh, the com a company is as good as its people. So we would look at softer factors like the the quality and quantity of the management team, and the employee satisfaction and retention rate. Right, to really assess if this is a company with a good culture that attracts good people, re retain good people, and hence they are the fuel for its future success. Uh, one of the sort of key. Um sort of attributes I know for a lot of business people is sort of self-awareness and ability to take feedback. I can imagine for a for a founder when they reach the stage where they're taking potentially very significant amounts of money from investors and things like that, I'd imagine that there's a, a, a sort of a stage uh, sort of a, where they're, they're, they're realizing that it's no longer you know, they, they, they have sort of higher powers almost to, 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 to report to and they, they, they have to take advice and they have to listen to, to things. Is that, is that, do you see do you see so many problems at that sort of stage of the business? Is there, you know, it, it, I'd imagine there's always teething problems, but uh, do, do you see sort of uh, um, much happening around that sort of stage of the business? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the investor community, we call it coachability, right? So we definitely prefer to work with founders who are coachable. Uh, this is not to say that we wanna we wanna act the role of the adult in the in the room, right? Who tell them what to do, but but it's just really about them having an open mind and open ear to take on input and feedback and have that self awareness to know when and how to change things up, right? To improve their business, improve their team, improve the strategy, the product when it's required. If you were to give advice to to, to founders or to founding teams. You know, what are the, the sort of key things that you could that you would suggest that they they consider very strongly or what are the, the key mis uh, OK, I won't start my questions, um, but yeah, what are the key things that you you think sort of advice wise you'd like to give to, 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 to founding teams? Well, my first advice to them is try to do the right thing at the right time. So try to have an awareness of the business environment and the trends that they're seeing um, and have an awareness of their own strengths and shortcomings so that they can do the right thing at the right time. So for example, bringing uh, the CTO or CFO, the senior talent that they need, right? When the business really needs it and be, before you run out of the runway to do so, or bringing the, the funds at the opportune time, not when, not when it's already too late um, and you realize that you're falling short. And the second advice, I would advise them to play the long game. Right, we're we're all gonna have a long career ahead of us, and whatever career they have in the future may very well exceed whatever they're doing right now. So try to act in a way that keeps a good reputation for themselves, and and make your their business partners and investors happy. So that may include right, not trying to game them, not trying to oversell, not trying to ask for the highest valuation possible for I guess for ego reasons. But really, think of the long game. Think of the reputation, and think of all the on uh, the on the future that that you can achieve by being, you know, a good player in the market. Okay, interesting. So it's it's a sort of a case of um, sort of timing um, and integrity. Um, really, sort of trying to focus on making sure that you're you're listening to people. You're getting you're getting a finger on the pulse. Perhaps speaking to other founders and, and sort of really understanding what the market is doing. But then also making sure that um, uh, you know, I, I think everybody knows Singapore and Southeast Asia. Is a, whilst it's a big market, it's also quite a small market in these spaces. And I think it's it's very important to look after your reputation and things. Um, and do do you see any common mistakes? Are there, are there is there a if you look at sort of businesses that sort of perhaps fail or they don't reach the levels that they should or um, or sort of you know promising promising businesses that you don't invest in is is there a sort of a common theme of of the mistakes they've made or or is there a common theme of the things that they they haven't done that they should have sort of missed opportunities do, do you see any anything anything now i would say one mistake that i usually see is when the cap table is investor unfriendly so perhaps um there's been uh, too much dilution at pretty early stages um, or or there's a big angel or there's some big uh, founders but who are not active anymore in the business or there's some big strategic investors who've taken up majority shares right in in the cap table and that leaves very little shouting left for the active executive founders mm. and so, I, so investors you see that as a skew 
uh, scheme of incentives uh, that would deter them from coming in. Yes, another mistake is when I see a startup approaching investors indiscriminately. So it's always much better if, if as a startup um, looking for funding, you would research and network and understand the investor's universe before you go out there and approach them so that you know which investors are the best fit for your business and at the stage that you're at. Um, and you also know what each investor's sweet spot is, right? In terms of the sector, in terms of uh, the geography, in terms of their style and so on. Mm. And that is much better than like um, a blanket a spray and pray approach. Do you see many, many founders almost trying to create like a, a bidding war um, or a sort of a, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll try and get as many investors interested as they can and then then try and get the best valuation and go with that one. Is, uh, I can imagine that's something that, that, that is probably a bit of a red flag for you guys, but does, does, it, does it happen that often? I don't think that it's bad that a startup attracts a lot of investor interest, right? If they are a good company, as long as, you know, those are legitimate interests and not just people they're talking to. And then they, they might sell that as, you know, more serious uh, conversations than, than they actually are. I guess when, when somebody comes to investment, you want, you want to see they've done the research, they, they know who their best partners are going to be, and then they take quite a, quite a sort of selective and specific approach to, to, then, to then get in front of those, those guys. Yeah, I guess another mistake that I come and see is that the startups are not ready right, for fundraising with international investors. Perhaps they are a bit too local and too traditional. They are not speaking the language of tech investors. Perhaps they don't have on the data ready. They don't track cohort data. They don't track customer lifetime value. Um, and so for those companies, I would really advise them to, to study this more, bring something, someone on board as advisor or as a team member to, yeah, to get them more in tune with, with how investors and how the tech scene uh, operates. So how much do you look at how sort of well-defined and well-developed their sort of governance and processes and, and, and things like that are? Are they important in an early stage or is it more uh, we would need somebody who's coachable to implement those those sort of those sort of things? Absolutely, you're, you're right. So we can't expect the same standard of governance, right, in early stage company as in a mature or populistic company. So I think we're, we have some toler tolerance for that. However, I think what we cannot fix, right, is the cap table, for example, right? If it's not set up uh, in a healthy way, then then that's not something investors can fix. Um, other than that, if it's if it involves like a like a family dynamic thing, then probably it's not something we can change. So I think within reasonable bounds, we, we have tolerance for, for companies that are not super professionally set up yet, but then they are well willing and they're able to set it up when investors come in or just before the investors come in. And typically when, when a, a business at that stage goes through that journey, do you, do you provide a framework for them do, or do you say, you know, that you should check this company out or speak to this person or how do you start along that, along that lines of, of um, I guess, sort of that implementing that, 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 that structure? We usually will discuss with them quite openly about these aspects if we proceed to let's say the term sheet stage with the company so we lay out you know what we would prefer to see in the governance structure so that will include the sort of the the board mechanisms uh, where the company is incorporated if it's incorporated in singapore that's great 
um, you know, the audit process, the financial reporting, the information sharing, um, the voting and the approval processes, you know, all these we will outline and discuss with the company at the publishing stage. So yeah, perhaps you could, um, so to, to, to wrap up, perhaps you could give us your, your overview of the, of, of the region and what, what, what's exciting. Sure thing. So Southeast Asia is an incredibly dynamic and uh, varied market as a region. So obviously we see a lot of opportunities coming out of Indonesia because it's a huge market and it's also seen early success stories the likes of Gojek, Tokopedia, uh, and Traveloka and so on, who are now coming back into the ecosystem and creating new startups. Um, Singapore is an interesting market because uh, it's got the best infrastructure and government support for both startups and VC. Um, and even though it's a small market, uh, it's actually you know, the biggest motivator for businesses to venture out of the home market and be regional from day one, from their DNA. Um, and then the third one is Vietnam, uh, where I come from. Uh, it's got a very entrepreneurial, very hungry, uh, young workforce. And a lot of them have studied and worked abroad and now coming back in a large wave. So we're, we're expecting to see more setup uh, opportunities coming out of Vietnam. So there are the other markets in Southeast Asia that are perhaps uh, still overlooked by most funds, but we find very exciting are Thailand and Philippines. Um, even though they don't have such a deep and broad uh, startup ecosystem, but, but we are seeing bright spots coming up in these markets. So, for example, in Thailand, we have a, an investment in Phenomena. It's a digital wealth management platform and very popular with, with the middle class there. And in Philippines, we have investment in Kumu, which is the social live streaming um, platform that is also going into social commerce. So I, I, one thing I wanted to ask was um, the Forbes 30 under 30 thing. So how did that, how did that come around? Let, let me tell you the true story and, and you let me know if it's worth mentioning. <laughs> so I never planned, right? I never aimed for it. I never planned for it, right? I, I didn't, I never plan or try to be on the Forbes under 30. Um, I think when that happened, I was already at my 20s. So I thought, okay, I would just, I would prefer to leave that to younger, talented people. Uh, but somehow I was nominated um, by, I guess, people in the tech ecosystem in Vietnam. And, and somehow I was selected in the list. I, I guess that, 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 is, that was a surprise to me. It was a great honor, but it was also a surprise for me. I, I have this uh, imposter syndrome for the longest time because everyone else in the list is like the top pop star in my country. Or it's like, it's like, uh, like, like the founder of like this like half billion dollar business. Or it's like just, just crazy, crazy successful people, right? And, um, and I'm like, okay, what, what am I doing here? So I, I think it's, it's kind of a recognition for the role of uh, technology and, and venture capital investors, you know, as enablers uh, for, for technology and for the sort of economic growth of, of like the new economy, right, right, for, for the country. Um, and and look, look at it, you know, this is a sector that is that is inherently young in nature, and so and so being a young person in this technology space, yeah, I guess it's like a recognition for that. And I just happen to be a VC who's under thirty, right? Look around, perhaps other people are much older. <laughs> was there an award ceremony? Did you? Did you was, oh yeah, there... yeah no, in Vietnam is actually really really good at all this uh, all this stuff that are not on paper. So like they had a really good like 
really engaging, interesting uh, photo shoot, right? Where we actually meet everyone else in the list. And it's not like 30 people in a discipline for Vietnam. It's like the whole country, all disciplines together, only 30 of us in total. Wow. So then we, I guess we developed a very close bond with each other. So I became friends with the pop star and like the martial arts uh, champion, whatever. And, and, and then we keep this group very close, right? So then I, I guess we all become friends and we actually really try to help and support each other. And, it's, and in a way, I, th- I feel that it's, it's very, it serves the purpose uh, slightly better than if you have like a very broad list and then I don't know, 30 people in one area and times 10, 20 areas, you have like hundreds of people every year, then you kind of get lost and you don't know who's who. So my experience with like the, the Forbes under 30 of Vietnam is like, it's really uh, enriching. It's a very enriching, inspiring network. Because I also get joined like the Forbes Worldwide under 30 network. And then it's just really like, like there's so many people, you don't know anyone and no one knows anyone and just feel feel very like diluted. Uh, so yeah, they had a they had a ceremony, a huge, huge party. They are, the Forbes is very good at organizing parties. So the next one, I would definitely want to invite you. Uh, yeah, like fashion, I don't know, fashion show. And then like mu- music shows and uh, yeah, because in the list there will always be like musical prodigy, right? Or who, who plays pianos at international level, or this huge pop star that had that that that, that sings with like Snoop Dogg and have like make hundreds of millions of views on YouTube and and then they are on this like maybe there's the like Vietnam's next top model winner, right? <laughs> and 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 Miss Universe, whatever. Like like there are random people like that in the list, not random, yeah. but like. Like really, yeah. we're like very diverse people. So we, we get a, a nice talent show and we get some, obviously some from forums, some, some discussions on stage. And, and I was actually somehow, I, I, I had a role on, on the stage uh, speaking about, I know, entrepreneurship and, and so on, I think. Yeah, so then I, I think that was also a privilege because uh, I could speak English slightly better than, than, than a local person. Yeah, anyways, uh, still, still, feel, uh, still feel that I have to live up to it. Well, it sounds like a wonderful experience and a wonderful network. Actually, one, 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 I'd like to just sort of push on a little bit on, more on Vietnam because um, obviously you're from Vietnam. Um, and um, t- tell us a bit about tell us a bit about the Vietnam market. Tell us a bit about what's going on there, the exciting stuff. And this, I mean, this can be with a VC hat. This can be with a, a Vietnamese person's hat. This is, can be however however you like. But t- tell us tell us all a little bit about about what's going on in Vietnam. No, that's a fascinating topic. I think Vietnam has been on the radar of international investors for for many years. Um, however, you know, it's still not deliver as many success stories as Singapore or Indonesia. Um, I think if, if you're an investor looking uh, to invest in Vietnam, it takes certain uh, it takes certain local understanding, but also certain level of flexibility because the kind of businesses and founding teams that will become successful in Vietnam, they don't follow the formula that you would find in Singapore or Indonesia or or the developed world. It's what I've learned. So they may be quite local, they may be they may not speak the the international investor language. But okay, and that, that's really just because obviously there's there's a, there are some incredibly successful domestic businesses for, for Vietnam, you know, people like sort of the MG and uh, the, the various sort of banks which are going through things and uh, I mean it sounds like that the the sort of the communication gap between businesses for Vietnam and, and sort of international investors is, has been a bit too large to too much of a gap to bridge. Do you, do you think that 
investors are changing their approach to, to markets like Vietnam? Or do you think that there is a sort of internationalization of a market like Vietnam? Or do you think it's maybe a bit of both? I think in order to discover the hidden gems in Vietnam, I think definitely helpful for investors to uh, to have a team member who is from Vietnam, or at least uh, from a scrappy emerging market, right? So that they understand how things are there. And then it's also important for the companies in Vietnam to step up, right? Because it's uh, they need to find a way to be heard, to be understood. And and so if, if both sides make this move, then then we can see that this gap uh, narrow in the future. Um, so we're on to the quick fire questions round. Everybody's favorite part of the podcast, which I don't think is actually true. I just like to say it. Um, and so um, I've got sort of five or six questions here. We'll just run through them. This can be business orientated. This can be however you like to answer these questions. That's 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 absolutely fine. But um, so question one, what is the best advice that you have been given? So there's an advice that I wish I had been given. Uh, and that is in the early stages of your career, don't chase after the highest money, but chase after the highest learning impacts. I think that's something that should be taught in school. Um, it's, a, it's a really, really insightful thing. Um, okay. Um, and next one, what is your favorite terrible management slogan or favorite terrible business slogan? And I, my, my one, as everybody knows, is when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. I've said that so many times now, I think I need a new one. But um, do, you have a, do you have something that, that people say in business, you're like, I just wish people would stop saying that. Well, you know, some company says a diamond is forever. And for a long time, the whole world believed it. Well, spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> I felt like the people that were saying that were also the same people that were hoarding all the diamonds somewhere. Of course. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. yes, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a lesson for all of us to understand that, you know, businesses say things to serve business purposes. Uh, and, mm. and definitely a very inspiring, successful marketing campaign. But yeah, um, you know, also recognize that is not, it's not true. Okay, so tell me something that is true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Well, I'm not sure if nobody agrees with me, but definitely um, a few years earlier when we were looking at payment opportunities, you know, most people would believe that the biggest opportunities in the unbanked population, but I believe that the biggest opportunity in fintech is with the banks population. And we see that the, the, the largest payment company in Vietnam now, uh, VNPay, actually, no. Okay, so we can see that the largest payment company now in Vietnam that is worth in the range of billions, um, they thrive on the banked uh, population and banking infrastructure. And uh, it's quite ironic, but uh, all the e-wallets, you know, if you wanna cash in, you also have to have a bank account and bank card. Uh, to cash in from there. So then there you go. Um, it's the bank population that, that sh you should be addressing. Interesting. Interesting. Because there was, um, I mean, there was a lot of talk, um, you know, five years ago, whatever it was about sort of fintech being the end of banking. Um, and this is something I've brought up in, in conversations with other, uh, sort of other, other people as well. Which it's uh, it, my, my view, particularly when I um, spent a bit of time in Vietnam and looking at sort of um, the, the penetration of of a lot of the, the banks into the market there, you know, whilst it wasn't sort of universal, the, 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 the large banks carried a certain reputation and a certain brand because they were sort of established companies that had been around for a long time and people, I guess, kind of trusted them. And my sort of view is that actually um, 
these guys have a really good opportunity to also bring fintech style products to the market and so especially in sort of markets where there's a big completely underserved population that the banks have a lot of opportunities to to do what dbs did and really sort of revolutionize their product offering and push it out to the to the unbanks and i, I wonder if that's a i know that's a slight aside to to your point but it's it's a fascinating um it's fascinating insight it's absolutely right that banking i think would not go away is the thing that goes away i think is the tra traditional way of banking and that's why we're seeing on this uh on this emergence of digital banking models um and you know it's arguable that that the traditional banks can transform themselves to be digital banks i think dbs is a very rare case and it's because you know it operates in a very developed very sort of first world environment in singapore but in other scrappy markets, you know, even the bank's management is not that good. Uh, they have no, just, they just have no mindset or capability to 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 have in-house tech capabilities. Like like, mm -hmm. you try to help them recruit a CTO and it never works, right? Um, so so yeah, so I think that's where the startups and the fintech uh, setups have have uh, have the the blue ocean to themselves, and and obviously they they would benefit from from partnering with the traditional bank, but then the traditional bank cannot do what a tech startup do. Uh, mm. I think if we, if we see more partnerships, then it'll be the best win-win formula. It's so interesting. I heard a quote the other day, which I found quite amusing. It's like, everybody has a blockchain strategy, but 95% of businesses, it exists only within PowerPoint. On to the next question. Uh, where's the first place that you will visit post-COVID? I'm dying to come back home to my, uh, my home in Vietnam and the capital, Hanoi. What's your most obscure hobby? Well, I guess beside gardening, I also love interior design, which is something I picked up uh, during the circuit breaker and being homebound for several months. I, I can just imagine you having the most pristine environment around you right now. You've got the inside sorted, you've got the outside sorted. It's, it's all... What part of the future are you most excited by? I'm excited by two things. One is how different our lives in our society will will look in five to ten years because of uh, the accelerated pace of technology adoption, and the second thing is the talent pool development. So I'm I'm really excited about you know all the talents that I'm meeting in the, in the market and even more talent coming back to these markets and and then you know successful set of founders coming back to the ecosystems and help groom other. Uh, other younger talents. Uh, I think it's the people aspect that is really exciting. And that's a wonderful place to finish. Look, that, Lana, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you very, very much for joining me on the podcast. I know you're, you're incredibly busy, so I really appreciate the time. And um, thank you very much. Thank you very much for a very fascinating conversation. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. We will be back in two weeks' time and have some fascinating guests lined up as we continue our exploration of Southeast Asia's most exciting businesses and investors. I look forward to seeing you then. Stay safe and farewell. <laughs>